Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis is speaking with KCSA Vice President Gretchen Gailey to recap KCSA's inaugural Congressional Cannabis Day Forum. Our second show in this unmissable series covers social justice issues. We were privileged to have with us Dr. Shonda Macias, the CEO and owner of National Holistic Healing Center and Women Grow, Jeanette Ward-Horton, Executive Director and Co-Founder of New Leaf Project, James Watts, Senior Consultant with Cage-Free Cannabis, and Moderator Lee Heiss of Forefront. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our Congressional Cannabis Day Forum's Social Justice Issues Panel. Gretchen, welcome back yet again to be sitting across my desk from me, looking at me talking cannabis. Oh, it's fantastic to be back. I'm sure you are as excited <laughs> as I am. Always. Yes, you are You are the most emotive person I've ever met, so it's really always a pleasure to have these types of conversations. I don't most people think they can read me fairly well. You don't seem to do very well at it. It's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, no, you are you are a cipher to me. So, um, this panel that we are talking about from from KCSA's DC Day was one that meant a lot to me. Um, I am a white guy, and I am the the least likely person in the world to have been impacted by the war on drugs. But as somebody who has a real empathy and and feel for you know the the communities of color and the the lower economic communities who have been seriously um, over impacted and disenfranchised this was a conversation that I really pushed for to have included in this in our DC day and the conversation was awesome um, it was moderated by Leah Heiss from Forefront. Um, Leah has been on the pod, um, and and if you know and you listen to us, you know that we have a very strong affinity to Chris Crane, um, SSDP, and, and the like. Um, and you know the 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 panel, which you'll I'll give you the opportunity to introduce, um, really was pretty really amazing. I mean the 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 thinking that they brought to this and the the different angle. Again, it wasn't all about the commerce of cannabis and you know the green rushes. We we say that we are. We talk at the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. This is much more the culture and the the policy side of of the conversation. Well, and it's also such an important conversation because if you do want to look at it more from the investment side and for states that are legalizing, you're seeing it right now with New York and New Jersey being held up um, and legislation not moving forward because they can't find the right path forward on the social justice issues. Um, So it's definitely changed how this industry is legislating itself and in and illinois are making efforts for it and illinois legislation had a very large social equity and social justice component and you're right you know new jersey new jersey should have gotten it done and they couldn't figure out the issues around expungement they couldn't figure out the issues around social equity not social justice social equity giving access to over impacted communities to the financial components of this industry and it's it is vital i mean this is a really core component to getting this right. I mean, so much of the legislation that's been passed in the past couple years has always been 
let's get it through. We'll worry about issues later. And folks have seen that's not the answer to legalizing various states. So it's nice to see that they're making this change and really pushing towards um, caring about social justice and equity issues. Um, On the panel, we were so lucky to have Dr. Shonda Macias. I love Shonda. I love Shonda. (laughs) She's a D.C. girl, uh, CEO of National Holistic Healing Center and also runs Women Grow. Um, the tremendous organization and Shonda has done so much work and it was so inspiring to hear her story and just how much she had to go through and struggle because being a black woman, no one wanted to give her a loan. She put out another mortgage on her house to get her cannabis dreams going. And she gives the best hugs in the industry. She does. She's always a favorite. Uh, we also had Jeanette Ward Horton with us. Um, some may know her as the CMO of, uh, MJ Freeway. But really, she's the also the executive director and co-founder of New Leaf Project, uh, which works with minorities, uh, trying to help them establish their place in the in the business industry in cannabis. Um, we also had the pleasure of having James Watts with us, uh, who's a senior consultant with Cage Free Cannabis, um, who works with folks on trying to get their records expunged and making sure that people do not go back to jail for working with a plant. And it was a bummer because Shay Aldretti, who is uh, the the CEO of Gen X, was supposed to be on the panel too um, and couldn't make it. But this was really, you know, in terms of panels that change the way you think about this industry, this is probably the, the panel that for me had the most impact. So again, don't sit back, lean forward. Um, and onto our panel um, at KCSA's DC Day on social justice. Okay, we are now panel four of five. Um, This is a panel that's a little different than the other ones because we've talked about the medicine of of cannabis. We've talked about the differences between CBD and hemp. We've talked a little bit, a lot, actually. We spent a a big part of this morning or this afternoon talking about the capital markets. but if you were able to hear my opening remarks uh, welcoming everybody, a large part of what has held cannabis back from full state-level acceptance and legalization at the federal level revolves around the issues of social justice and social equity. Um, and moderating this panel um, is a true dynamo in the industry. It's Leah Heiss who is the chief experience officer at Forefront and soon to be Forefront Canex. Um, Forefront, if you are not aware, was founded by uh, a gentleman named Chris Crane. Chris is one of the earliest um, and legitimate OGs when it comes to the the legalization and the advocacy side of this industry. And Leah is right there with him, standing side by side. Um, This is, to me, the panel that touches my heart the most because as somebody who lives in New Jersey and works in New York City on a daily basis, we've seen our regulators and legislators basically screw the pooch. Um, Not because they don't have the best intentions, but because of the fraught level of politics around the issues of social justice and social equity, that they're going to leave it to the voters, which in every other state is how this has passed. So um, with that, I'm going to turn this over to, to Leah. Um, Thank you so much. That was a lovely introduction. I'm going to sit, one, because my feet are killing me in these heels, and two, because I'm really shortened, so you probably can't see me very well (laughs) over top of that 
podium. It's the, you know, short people disease. It's okay. Um, again, my name is Leah Heiss, and I'm so honored to be moderating this panel. Social equity is something that I am incredibly passionate about. I think that we do not have enough minority representation in this um, industry by any stretch of the imagination. I live in Maryland. Um, Maryland failed dramatically in its social equity uh, when under the first rollout. Um, hopefully the next time they will do a better job with these upcoming licenses. Um, and this is a super, super important, um, important topic to me. Uh, but this isn't about me. This is about our esteemed panel. And I would love to take the opportunity to have Shonda and each one of them tell a little bit about themselves. Shonda, you want to tell about you? Sure, sure. Um, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to have this voice here. I appreciate it so much. Um, so I'm Dr. Shonda Macias. I am. I represent less than 4% of African Americans in ownership in the cannabis business. I do have a plant touching business. I am a multi-state operator in Washington, D.C., as well as Louisiana, um, retail shop in Washington, D.C., and grower processor in the state of Louisiana. Um, I am been operational since 2015, but my work that has brought me here is through cancer research. Um, I've studied breast cancer and prostate cancer, metastasis to bone, and I focus on um, now just uh, the, the impact of having science meet um, patients in the cannabis world and really aligning strains to different ailments and conditions. But when I entered into this industry, what I realized is that um, I would enter a room and I would be the only person of color and the only woman usually in those rooms. So that was very um, important for me to have representation um, in the industry and actually go out and advocate for that. So through that channel, I have worked with, um, I'm the CEO of Women Grow, and where there are less than 26% of women in any aspect of the cannabis industry. So we need women here as well. There's a quite disparity in those two populations, minorities and women, and we'll talk to you about some of those issues. <laughs> Thank you. Jeanette? So I'm Jeanette Ward-Horton, and I came to cannabis about five years ago. I lead PR and marketing for a technology company called uh, MJ Freeway. Uh, we're a seed-to-sale company, and we are the largest global cannabis technology provider. Like Shonda, when I got here, I saw the opportunity for there to be more people of color in cannabis, and my personal background is one of arrest of myself, arrest of my family, and it, it is a thread I think we need to pull through and solve. We attacked a population with cannabis criminalization, and we need to create opportunities for that population on the other side. So I joined the Minority Cannabis Business Association and helped launch that as the co-chair, uh, and then I moved on to something that's local, which is administering cannabis tax revenue to businesses owned by African Americans and other minorities in Portland. So the city of Portland is giving, uh, giving part of its tax revenue to invest in cannabis businesses owned by minorities, and my organization, New Leaf Project, stewards that work, and we make, make those investments. Wow. Um. So I gotta follow up both of them. Uh, awesome, awesome. I'm James Watts. Um, I'm local from DC. Uh, I got into the cannabis space as a consultant in 2015 when Prop 71 came about and uh, there wasn't really any opportunity for people that look like me uh, in the space. So I began traveling across the nation, um, advocating for 
such inclusion and found out that it was, you know, a broad issue everywhere. It, it wasn't just here. Um, so I came back home, um, joined up with Cage Free Cannabis, and have started lobbying for inclusion across the country at, um, at a congressional level. Um, so that's why I'm here today to kind of impress upon everybody here the importance of having inclusion from the traditional market. Um, as it's not the black market, it's the traditional market because we started, we started, you know, this, this, this uh, want, need, uh, awareness for cannabis and now we're being criminalized um, and boxed out uh, with the experience that we bring to the table and I think it's desperate here. Um, so thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, let's get started with the first question of the day. Um, and I think it's a, it's a pertinent question and it might be something that each one of you has a different answer for and everyone in this room will probably have a different answer for what it is. So what is the definition of social equity? So the definition of social equity to me means a way that we can elevate those that are not on the same playing field with us. Let me explain what that means from my standpoint as a black woman. When a policy was established that said that minorities um, that were targeted receive incarceration because of a policy, so let me explain. A policy incarcerated a population of African-American men. But what that did for me is that it made me a single mother of three without a male presence to raise my family. So when you think about that, you are then subsidized by federal housing. And then I'm replacing the black man with federal um, monies to maintain my household. And then one of my children who do not have access to health care again, and they might use medical cannabis to address their health care needs, they're in prison and then I lose my housing again. I am no way possible can even think about entering the industry that has impacted my life and changed my life so dramatically. So how now that in that narrative do we come back and be part of an industry that target our population, that, I mean, created a division in our family that is irrevocable, and then now that everyone knows the demand of medical cannabis, how can we create programs that give back to the community that was impacted negatively by it? That's the real question. So um, just to build on what Shonda said, she gave a good example. Um, there's a term for it called compounded deprivation. A Harvard researcher named Deborah Pager um, coined this term. And uh, it's about the economic pylon of arrest and incarceration and how that has impacted African-American communities intergenerationally, their um, inability to earn wealth and build wealth um, as generations. Uh, the generations of African-Americans are poorer than the generation that came before. And there's a lot of that tied in arrest. So when we flip and we decide that this is now legal and this is now an opportunity for us to get tax revenue um, that's, that's new, that's, that's, that's brand new, it's brand new tax revenue, it's exciting stuff, it's why we're all here, um, that tax revenue, we have an obligation to invest that back into the communities that we stole the economics from when we arrested and incarcerated them. 
There really is, and it's not an obligation because it's the right thing to do, it is, and if that's motivating you, great. For cities and, and states, it's an obligation because these communities are your communities that then contribute to your economic health, that then are jobs, that then are um, just the growth of your economies. And we see that when we invest in these businesses through New Leaf Project. We see these returns on investment that are really phenomenal. And that's just a tax story for cities and states, even if it's nothing else. So um, you know, whether it's the right thing to do or whether it's just a good economic play, social equity is about rebalancing that compounded deprivation, that detriment that was done through incarceration and arrest. <laughs> um, Put that microphone. I, I, I don't. I can't. I can't follow that. Really. Um, <laughs> they, they said everything. Social equity is just about opportunity. Opportunity for the people who paved the way. Um, opportunity for people who have uh, experience, traditional experience in the industry. You know, people who can add things to the industry. Just having the space to be able to do what they've done before and not being shut out of something that they were already doing. That's that's really all it is to me. So before we hop into you know, what can be done in order to make these issues better and what should we be asking our legislators for, um, what are some of, we've talked a little bit about the impacts that we're seeing, but what are some ways that people have attempted to fix it that may not be the best possible ways to do it? So, um, I, I have to emphasize something here before we go. In this room, if you have ever used penicillin and the government then says to you, it's a policy that I've established that if you use penicillin, you're going to prison. This is how our community sees what's happening. And then after a certain number of individuals are incarcerated, they said, oh, it's okay to use penicillin now. How do you fix that? I mean, we're talking about people's lives here that I don't think that you can give us back those years that were taken away from us, that economic impact. I mean, we can start to think about future generations, but in my mind, there's no way to resolve that. You can't give me the life that I was deprived of, but what we can do is now we have to focus on the future. Mm -hmm. And the future starts with one, we have to open up the market back to minorities that were disproportionately impacted through workforce programs, through equity programs. I haven't seen a good one. The first one that I saw was um, that was really driven by present uh, of the passion was the California Collective. We had people come together to say that cannabis is medicine and we're gonna grow it collectively for our patients. And that has been stripped from us. So where do we go from there? Leah, I don't think we have an answer, but I'll let Jeanette try. <laughs> <laughs> Leah, was the question what's working or what's not working? Um, I think there's a lot of what's not working, but if you would, yeah, <laughs> some, some um, examples of what states have done, where we've fallen down yeah. um, in terms of our legislation. I mean, Maryland's a prime yeah. example of wh where we failed on that one. Um, so for me, the, um, when we're talking about representation of African Americans or people of color in, as owners um, in these companies or investors in these companies, um, 
what when and when states have tried to create or cities have tried to create opportunities for people of color, um, when you don't address the capital barrier is usually when you find you have an issue. So whether you reserve a number of licenses for a certain population or you do a one-to-one, -one, we give one to traditional and then one to minority, um, when you don't have minority groups that have the access to the capital, then it, it, it doesn't matter that you set them aside, you ask me to have 250000 in liquid capital. So we can't come to them. That. And that's not necessary, is the other thing I would say. So we look at the state of Oregon and Portland where the licensing fees are low. It still takes a lot of capital to start a cannabis business regardless of where you live, regardless of the cost of your licensing fee. And so we need to address that. Um, so when we can address the capital hurdles, but try to make the licensing fees and the licensing requirements low. You don't need to have $250,000 in liquid capital. You just don't, Pennsylvania. That was Pennsylvania's law uh, or, or licensing requirement. So when we lower those capital hurdles and then we provide opportunities for capital to these businesses because it's gonna get you, it's gonna take you $100,000 to start your cultivation facility anyway. Lucky, yeah. um, so we need access to capital and cities do that all the time. All the time they give tax breaks and they give you know, economic investments to, to the right neighborhoods, the right types of businesses that they want to um, see flourish. So this is an opportunity to do that. I'm going to jump in, Jeanette, because um, when I entered the market, um, and I just know that in my community is very few black people who can get a loan in a legitimate business from a bank. I mean, that's my reality. So when I went into the industry to think about asking someone else to invest in me was nearly impossible. And it was impossible and I'm sitting here like, well, this cannabis business got an investment, but an African-American woman with a PhD, an MBA, with a successful history of entrepreneurship can't get any type of funding. And I had to mortgage my home, which I wind up losing behind it. I lost my home banking on what I could do for a patient. This is the realities of what we're dealing with here in this industry. Again, you know, we can think about successful programs, but who can reconciliate in mainstream America, you know, how minorities and women who are clearly under attack right now cannot have, they don't have the voice to even protect themselves. James is like, no. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I think I, I agree. I agree with the I agree with the financing uh, heavily. Uh, I think I think opportunity access to financing is is hugely important. Um, but I think it's a multifaceted approach, and nobody is really taking the approach. Nobody's nobody's taking the time to really flesh it out, address it with the community, understand what the community thinks, what the community needs, because you know Portland doesn't need the same things as DC, as New York might need, Massachusetts. Um, from my perspective, I think the people who have done it best thus far is Massachusetts, but it comes back to funding. They can't get funding. Same thing with California. Can't, every time there is a funding issue, it goes to police instead mm -hmm. of equity programs, and we wouldn't need as many police if we funded the equity programs. Because you know the traditional market would have these opportunities. They wouldn't be in these places to be criminals. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Appreciate you. Um, 
Right. Uh, so I, I think I think really getting to the community and getting a group of people that have good ideas who haven't been included in the conversation um, together and really fleshing out what this looks like. But it definitely starts with removing barriers and financing. Yeah, capital is definitely a problem. It's something that we see as a large multi-state operator um, working with minority clients is that capital piece and the difficulty to do it. And also the difficulty to build a, um, a team that's attractive to a legislative body, especially when you take out the minority piece and it's a blind, um, it's a completely blind application and you're looking at the team qualities, there's been people that have been previously incarcerated haven't had the opportunity to build the skill sets that they need to be able to run the company. And I feel like it's, it's our responsibilities as large multi-state operators and multi-state operators to, to reach down and pull people up, just, just like that guy over there did for you to give you the name tag. You know, we need other people to reach down and pull you up. If I'm successful as a female C. Um, person inside of my company, I need to reach down to those other minorities in my company and pull them up with me and make sure that they have the same opportunities that I've had for myself. Um, and I mean, I think that's just part of a potential solution. Okay. What other kinds of solutions could we do? Could I address that? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> that mindset right there, like, is like a trigger for me because I don't need you to reach down. Mm -hmm. I have the experience. I have the knowledge that people with capital don't have, right? And my value, just personally, and I know other people in this space who have the same value, my value doesn't come from, you know, people coming and reaching down. I don't, I don't need to reach down personally. I need uh, uh, ad admission of my value, you know, acknowledgement of my value and with the value that I'm already bringing that people don't have in this space. There are clientele. I think part of that is about reaching down. I don't, you I don't, don't recognize. Like it's a lot opportunity. Of times it, right, but the opportunity right. isn't given there. Yeah, isn't Not, often given to people in It's the reaching down setting. part that yeah. I'm having a real issue okay, with because I'm not down anywhere. Like, I'm laterally, and people aren't acknowledging that because it's a, you know, it comes from, a, I, I, had a, I had a conference call last night for a consulting job, and all of these people kept asking me, what's my resume? Right? What is my resume? What, 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 I didn't. I, we're not in Cali, not in California. I don't have a legitimate resume, right? So I can't give you one. I don't have one, and and that's like, that's like the space where people aren't acknowledging you can have a legitimate resume without being in the legitimate side of the business now, because you do have those skills, right? It's not a thing about skills. It's not a thing about, it's not a thing about what we don't have. It's a thing about what we're not acknowledged for having, right? We're not acknowledged for having the skills already. And it, it's like we're formally incarcerated, but that doesn't mean we're lacking of skills. Well, and that's why I gave the example. I'm a doctor. I have an MBA from in supply chain management, operational analysis by the number three business school in the nation. And are you telling me that I can't get the opportunity? I mean, again, we can look at it across the board. It's not just on the entry level, it's on the executive level. 100%. I mean, I was a director of STEM education at Howard University, shooting up administration, launched $2 billion brands in Colgate-Pomalo's name. Are you still telling me I should not have access? So again, we're here. 
we're just not allowed entry. And this is the problem that we're having with social equity still causing the divide. You're saying that this is mainstream and then this is you over there. And you know, how can we help you, but yet you're dividing us. You're keeping on us on two separate tracks when in fact, we have everything except for that capital piece because we've been incarcerated generationally. That's what we're missing. Mm -hmm. And the opportunities. You're missing the opportunities. Capital makes opportunities. Yeah. Just <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a lot you can do with the money. Yes. What other solutions do we have? So right now, I think that Let's, let's flip the conversation. <laughs> let's take a different narrative by it. Now that we do have this income that is being generated by the cannabis business, maybe states should consider giving um, a certain amount back to the communities that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. I've seen this in Florida, for example. For every cannabis card that is issued, $10 go into a state fund that is issued and mandated by Florida A&M. So they're bringing it back to a historically black college and university to say, all right, how do we direct this money into programs that could sustain um, or create more programming and education opportunities in those communities? So that is a good example of it. Um, here in Washington, D.C., we're still working. We were able to get some traction on um, if you are have a non-violent um, crime that you're able to at least get hired into the workforce here. So for those that don't know it, if you have a background, um, uh, any type of possession charge, a felony charge, you cannot work in the industry. And so now we're trying to seal records, work on expungement clinics, and um, continue that narrative. But that's not an easy narrative to continue. If you think about expungements, um, it's usually a year or two before you can actually get a record cleaned up or even sealed. So again, in times of a rapidly growing industry and things are changing day by day, a two-year grace period, again, is going to be hard for minority participation. The other thing I'm going to have to talk about is decriminalization. As long as decriminalization is around, you're going to disproportionately impact minority communities. I mean, just to know that in some places that um, I go from Maryland, D.C. to Virginia, you have to be very careful how you tread all three of them. But also, if you are a minority, it's a different type of environment that you're in, um, in face, you're facing every day. But when you go down south, I mean, you really feel the, 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 the impact of criminalization and how communities, women, um, as well as minorities are being impacted there as well. So there's still, I mean, to say what are different ways, the system is like, if you think of the supply chain of, of what cannabis looks like and the impact it has had on minority populations, every step of the way there has been a problem, an implication, and you cannot fix the whole system until you completely revamp it. And how do you do that? Well, legislation. Mm -hmm. And we are not reflected in that re legislation. 
on the federal level, and I will tell you on the state's level, we're still fighting for inclusion. Sorry, James. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a good conversation. Um, I think I think the I think the places we can make the most strides is you know being such a new industry, we can mold it. Um, this is an opportunity to mold it in a different way than business as usual. Um, I, I think that's the place to start. Um, but you know, uh, I like I like what Massachusetts is doing. Um, Can you describe to them what, what Massachusetts is doing? Uh, so, like Massachusetts has community host agreements, um, which is one of the things I like, which um, uh, implores the businesses, whatever community that they're in, to go into the community and speak to the people of the community and figure out what things that they're going to agree to. You know, beautification days, um, playgrounds, things of these nature. Uh, um, things to give it back to the communities that they're in, that, they're, that their business is actually physically in, and give the community some say into who comes into their space. Um, so it's kind of more of a working relationship with the community instead of just a business taking all the money out of a community, like we came in to take y'all money. And I, you know, I don't think any community really likes that, um, but I like that from Massachusetts. Um, they have a reinvestment fund. Um, that the taxes go into, that people can pull out of, equity applicants can pull out of for, for the financing discrepancies that, that we're speaking of. Um, they have a cannabis commission. <laughs> yeah, and a strong from commissioner on that one. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, they also, um, Cambridge recently came out and is putting forth a very strong social equity program. There have certain licenses are being completely set aside for social equity applicants and even residential applicants. They want to make sure that the people that are serving their community actually come from that community. That's very hard. Um, I, even though it is legalized, there's residual healing that has to come in the black community. We are um, right now doing our best to go into churches in, in our different congregations and educate the difference in policy and what's changed. But it's very hard when your child has been locked up for 10 years. So even though a lot of social equity programs are still there, it's a whole nother education level to get us to engage. And then I will say, you know, we're trying to highlight some of the better programs. But I will pause and say that I've had social equity applicants out of Oakland um, that are being, their licenses, once they get them and they can't get funding, I don't know if that's by design, that are have to sell immediately to Canadian companies, multi-state operators. So again, we're dropping the ball somewhere um, and they're falling prey to those that have the ability to actually um, bring their businesses to retail operation. Yeah. Well, I'm a broken record about capital. <laughs> Just a broken record. Because what the example Shonda gave is perfect. When you don't have the capital, what you now hold is this valuable license. So the other thing I don't agree with and I think hurts social equity is limited licensing because mm -hmm. it makes a license more valuable. And once it's more valuable, it changes the landscape of who can afford that license. So what I like about Oregon and Portland is, at least until today, it's still unlimited licensing. And we have, for a state that's very white, 
uh, surprisingly diverse population of cannabis business owners because of the low threshold to enter from a financial perspective and uh, unlimited licensing. Are you seeing some of those impacts as well, not just on the business, but I know we have a dispensary on the south side of Chicago, and we're finding that the, the barriers to entry, even as a patient, um, because they have to be fingerprinted, because the, the cost is like $750 just to get a card to be ev- able to have it. Um, mm-hmm. And we as a dispensary are completely prohibited from helping the patients right. and, and doing anything we can to give them money to alleviate those costs. Um, I think there's an impact even from a patient level and mm-hmm. things that we probably should be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, and I can speak a little bit about that. So when... African-American populations didn't have access to health care. They use medical cannabis. I call all cannabis to me is medical cannabis. It does have a, a true medicinal value. So our community has been using cannabis for decades. We never stopped using it. We just stayed in the underground. And so now you want to put a regulated business in our neighborhoods and say, use this. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that slap in the face. Again, you incarcerated us and now you want us to buy in into a regulatory system that was used to imprison us. I, it's it, There's so many mixed messages with that. So um, in our communities, we still medicate. And that's why we're targeted, because, but we do it still proportionally to that of our counterparts. But yet, still, that's what we have to face. And so when you think about um, patients that are consuming cannabis, let's say, in a black market, um, the, the ploys have been, well, it's not tested and it's not regulated. But I have to say, for the last 30 years, it hasn't been tested <laughs> and regulated either. So what has changed? So this is the education, but this is the disparity that exists. And um, But we also know that we tend to use certain medicines in our community, natural medicines in our community, um, and have been doing this a part of our culture, um, whether it's Caribbean, African, et cetera, for, um, that's indicative of just um, who we are. So this is not a foreign concept to us. It's just that one that's coming to the forefront because of policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't piggyback off of that real quick. Um, uh, just to add a little something, I, that the dispensaries and the cultivation centers that I've been running into for the most part, um, their demographic is not our demographic. Mm-hmm. So like the uh, the doctor was talking about earlier, everybody has different um, you know profiles. It, it affects people's endocannabinoid systems differently. Um, so there are different profiles that just seem to work better for people of color, right? You know, people of color, seem, they, they like a lot of heavier strains now because I, don't, I have no idea, it's just popular. And the dispensaries don't really carry those profiles. Um, so when the when, when, when the communities get these cards and they go into dispensaries, it's nothing there that they're used to. Right? So I have a bunch of people that come to me since I'm consulting, and they're like, you know, I went to the dispensary. I, I, I can't find, you know, whatever, OG. Or I can't find the OG profile that I really like. And they're like, I, I, I don't want to go to the dispensary anymore. And 
their their voices aren't heard. Um, it, this industry isn't really about the patients, and then the 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 general profiles that they have are, I think it's forty five to sixty five year old white women. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, that that doesn't cover like the the market, <laughs> right? No. So it's kind of uh, it it doesn't really pander to us. So we'd rather stay in the places that are more comfortable, mm -hmm. right? The, the place thirty years been good here so far <laughs> that's far right so let's stick with that we've got lots of og in oregon come smoke with us yeah. <laughs> oregon has covered very good <laughs> they really do <laughs> but that's such a valid point again i'm focusing on strain alignment so what you're saying is exactly what we tackle again studying prostate cancer metastasis to bone because it impacts the black male they need something specific for their condition, which is not a blue dream. Blue dream is for my white women, and we <laughs> love that. And I will tell you, because they deal with different conditions that deal with women ailments, and again, that's where we target it. So we focus on true medicine for specific populations, but if you have a, a true pain, yes, a master cush, would be wonderful, but that's not what is in a lot of dispensaries today. And that's because we can go into that whole C profiling and evolution and everything else. But yes, if you are asthmatic, there are specific strains for your asthma. If you're diabetic, there are certain strains for diabetes. But if you're not getting that type of healthcare relief from your dispensary because they don't know what the patients actually need, that's an issue. And I think, Dr. Fry, you could talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit more. So what else can we do um, about social equity? We've identified a number of things. We certainly need access to capital. Um, expungement. Um, I actually just joined a, the board of an organization called freereentry.org, um, and the mandate of our organization is to help reduce recidivism, to educate and train um, uh, felons and also to help with expungement. Um, but I think there's a long way that we have to go to make a difference um, in these communities and any, any specific asks for the legislators of Congress in particular. I do. And uh, for me, it's that the, the devil's in the details. So I'll give you an example. The um, Marijuana Freedom and Opportunity Act is one of the descheduling acts that's currently uh, floating around Congress and Schumer and uh, Hakeem Jeffries are the uh, sponsors of this bill. And um, when they did their press campaign about it before the bill came out, it sounded amazing. It's going to deschedule, which is uh, the best path forward. And then it's got um, language around both expungements and uh, investing cannabis tax revenue in minority-owned and women-owned businesses. But then you read the bill. And they're going to use the SBA, the Small Business Administration, to invest that money into minority-owned, although that's not how it's defined. It's defined as socially and economically disadvantaged people and women-owned businesses. And then you look at the SBA's lending record. They have a lending record of 3% of their funds over the last six years to African Americans. And I think, well, that's not going to work. So you have to really when you get into the details. You have to roll around with these bills in your state, in your city, um, nationally, and really challenge that they're going to be effective to impact the communities most harmed by the war on drugs. Who is that community? It's African Americans. We need to name the population and then ensure that as these, these, this legislation really turns into 
laws and policy and investments in organizations that those are really serving African Americans. So I would implore you all to pay attention to the details. Expungement is the same way. You're gonna be investing money according to the bill in public defender's office and legal aid offices. Well, if you don't fix the expungement rules and system, that's not gonna help. People can't get expunged if they still have fines and fees from whatever their judgment was. And people of color generally can't pay that extra bill. You just slap me with an extra bill. And every time I can't pay it, that turns into fines and fees on top of that. And so I can't get expunged. I'm not eligible for expungement for a crime that's now legal. So again, when I say the devil's in the details, we have to really get in there and pick it apart and say, is this gonna help African Americans? I'll jump in there. Um, <laughs> and so what I think that right now we're in a, it's kind of compromising with states acts is out there that I think that's the bill with the most traction. But if I had a chance to speak to legislators and convince them on what we need to do first, I'm gonna say protect our vulnerable populations. So women and children, um, I would like to see some inherent um, protections about mother administering cannabis um, to children without a medical license um, in emergency situations. Or at least um, in states like Pennsylvania when they didn't have um, safe harbor acts, some type of general protection for mothers and children. You can't put a policy between the life of a mother and a child. We won't have a choice. We're picking our children each time. So with that, I think there needs to be some type of protections for mother and children. I think about the next population that's vulnerable, which is our veterans. Um, if Veteran Affairs does not change their policy, they're actually helping veterans commit suicide every 22 seconds every day. And this is something that people don't realize our veterans are dying. And without medical cannabis, they haven't been, we've seen a wonderful restoration of life um, but we need some more protections or um, some language in there to, uh, to help to open up the program for our veterans. I think about um, our minorities that use cannabis as a health care, true health care option, but federal subsidized housing is not allowed and you will be evicted and kicked out your homes. Mm -hmm. I think that if you're using medication um, and it is legal in that jurisdiction, that in fact there should be some protections in your housing situation and that it shouldn't be targeted against vulnerable populations that cannot speak for themselves. Um, and then the last population I would like to see some protections is our endogenous Americans where their reservations and their rights to have marijuana, mar medical marijuana or even cannabis touching operations have been pretty much strict or prohibitive. Um, we have, um, just the way the system has been built out, that they should have the ability to exercise their right on their reservation and their lands to be able to grow cannabis for their medical needs. And again, these are vulnerable populations that are continually be targeted by policy that is um, enabling communities. One more, I'm sorry. <laughs> This is a personal one. If you are a, a permanent resident and you are allowed to work here and you go and work in a cannabis touching operation, they will deport you. They will. This is unbelievable. 
And so that is the newest, the immigration population are being targeted directly for entering the cannabis market in uh, any aspect, whether it's ownership or workforce diversity. So again, these are the targets. I'm letting you know the targets. Let's just get some protection to help some communities that need to just be protected just to use medical cannabis. Thank you. Um, we have time for a couple of questions, and then um, we will move on. Hi. Thank you. For, thank you for your excellent panel. A couple of things. First of all, it's 22 vets a day, not a second. <laughs> thank you for catching that. Okay. A second would be a lot. That'd be a hell of a lot of vets. I think that would get the attention of the government. Yes. Just a thought. I mean, 22 is bad enough. I mean, yeah. a day. But the other thing is, and the reason I brought my phone is because um, I've been in this space for a lot of years. There's about, there's over, let's see, as of today, there's 14,832 different cannabis varieties that are registered, okay? Blue Dream is a meaningless name, absolutely meaningless. <laughs> a grower in Mendocino County versus a grower in, in Humboldt versus one in Colorado versus whatever, there's not going to be a whole hell of a lot in common between those Blue Dreams. And... Because there is no protections on nomenclature, mm. it is, um, only in my opinion, irresponsible to say a strain is good for a disease. Because everybody's endocannabinoid system is different, and so what works for one person for the same exact disease, it might be something completely different. So we need to look at the profile and say, a profile that is rich in limonene and THCV and yada yada, yada we have shown evidence of that being efficacious for X. And that's a much more responsible way to approach it than to say, oh, Blue Dream works for this and Kush works for that and OG works for that. So that's, I mean, it's just, I, I get people that write to me all the time and they're getting their medical advice from Leafly and Facebook and it's just, it's, it's not responsible. And it's also dangerous because then they go, gosh, I tried it and it didn't work for me. So then they don't realize that they have 14,000 other varieties to look at that all come from the original 155 Landry strains that have all become hybrids from that point. But um, so the people that have, have chosen to operate in a, I also don't like the term black market because I think it's pejorative in its terms itself, but into a gray or underground market before a, a regulated or legal one. Um, if they chose to operate in that simply because there was economic opportunity, I'm not talking about the kid that's told to empty their pockets and they, a joint falls out and they get thrown up against a car and incarcerated. But people that were operating basically in an illegal method, and if it hadn't been cannabis, it may have been guns or it may have been something else. It may have been CBD. It may, well, I think CBD should be regulated. So you're right, I'm right there with you. I don't think CBD, I think that's just one chemical in a huge plant. But did the, is that, are you lumping all people of color and all arrests into one population that should be given social advantage? No. Okay. But, uh, is that a question though? Yes, no. it is. Okay. No. Um, to adjust that as a question, I would say no. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers speak for themselves, right? right? Uh, in, in Washington DC alone, since uh, medical marijuana has been legal and there have been medical dispensaries, the arrest rate has gone up for people of color, mm -hmm. black people, mm -hmm. okay? Um, I'm not saying that 
all these arrests or that. But if you look at the system, the war on drugs, the system of the war on drugs, it has been a system against people of color. So I think you, you, you need to address that. 100% agree. I just wonder if it's the people who are doing the big, giant, huge moving of drugs, if they're all being lumped together. Who is that? Yeah, I'm I don't have a plane. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, I know. I don't, I don't have a poppy field. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not just looking. When I say people of color, I'm not just looking at people of black people. I'm also looking at people of all colors, of, you know, right. non Caucasian. I don't have these resources. Right, right. Right. Most of these people don't have these resources that are right. incarcerated for these things. Right. Right. I, yeah. Kingpins aren't really getting incarcerated. Right. Right. They, they run to other countries. Yes, and then so my answer California, is yes. Like, yeah. Kingpins aren't getting incarcerated. Yeah, they so are. even if I, so I'm sure they're somewhere, but even if I had an underground grow, um, I think I should have the opportunity to enter a market we have now decided is legal. You arrested me. I served whatever time you told me to serve when it was illegal. Mm -hmm. And now you've changed your mind. Congratulations. I knew it was good all along. Why would you tell me I can't enter the market? Mm -hmm. Okay. But I, I just, I, the, what you're saying is great. I, I understand your point, but if you're going to point that finger, you need to point it at CVS and Walgreens, the people that are doing Oh, believe me, I'm right now, there with right? you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking about the people who are, you know, there's guns involved and there's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it, ha, it might be cannabis, it might be prostitution, it might be gun. It's just, it's a, they're, they're, they're not people who were using this because it was helping their grandmother. And so they were helping their grandmother, and they got incarcerated. Well, they might have been—they yeah. might have been helping their PTSD from getting shot at. Uh, or they seriously. might have been helping their family survive because they don't have any access to any other resources. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hello. That's a good segue into me. <laughs> um, I'm the only person in this room that looks like me. I'm a minority among a minority among a minority, <laughs> and that's Rastafari people. Now. Almost everybody in here jams out to Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and all the nice music from Jamaica and they like Rasta people and they get to see Rasta people and it's associated with smoking herb. Even bringing the term herb to people and, and just the, the culture of herb and cannabis that has been given to people by the grace of God Almighty, which is what Rastafari people is representing. That has not been addressed or even taken into account the religious use that people have been using and persecuting, excuse me, been persecuted for under religious use. So our constitutional rights within this country, within the uh, UN conventions, have been violated across the board by every government jurisdiction on this planet. You check it? And we're not included in any of that. All of these terms uh, that, that come about, um, all of these things, uh, particularly when the, woman, the sister was talking about the, the black market. The black market is black because it was black people doing it, okay? And Rastafari people is them people that you were talking about that were bringing in tons. Bringing in tons, okay? And risk, risking their lives. Because why? We couldn't get no work. We couldn't get anything else. That's why. And if you do what our creed, our religion says, the hungry fed, the naked clothed, the sick nourished, the AIDS protected and the infants cared for, that takes money. And the only access to money, to capital that we ever had for basic necessities, 
food, clothing, shelter. Was the herb given, from, given to us from the creator himself, and we've suffered a lot just because of that. Now, there's no addressing of that within this, within this um, panel right here. And I'm not saying that just to uh, complain or anything like that. What I'm saying is that within this whole uh, social justice thing, we have clear laws as far as uh, religious rights, the right to freedom of religion that have been violated, violated for so long. And um, we need a seat at the table. So I'm gonna jump in here. Um, so when I chose to study malaria in Ethiopia, I went and I studied extensively in what is known as Sheshamani. Sheshamani is where Rastafara actually evolved from. So when I speak, I might not speak directly on just one specific African-American or black population, but believe me, I come from a place of where that actually generated from. And even for cultural use in Jamaica today to be able to use cannabis is still not widely accepted in that community as well. So that's why I talked about protections with vulnerable populations, especially the endogenous Americans that are impacted for their cultural beliefs in using cannabis, but that does speak for the Rastafarian community as well. So unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. Um, obviously, this is an incredibly important conversation that needs to be continued and continued and continued. And um, we urge you to um, contact your legislators to help out, to volunteer for any number of organizations. The Minority Cannabis Business Association is a wonderful organization. Um, there's lots of nonprofits that are trying to create uh, solutions to this, and we encourage you to take part. Thank you. And with that, that is the end of our social justice panel. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Um, we're not going to be giving the contact information for all of the panelists. Um, there will be information on them in the show notes. Uh, I want to thank uh, Gretchen Gailey, Nick Opich, and McKenna Miller for helping us pull off the DC day. It was a, a heavy undertaking and they spent a lot of their personal time making sure that it went as smoothly as it did. If you want to engage with us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at the underscore green rush. You can also look at all of our pretty pictures on Instagram with the handle at the green rush underscore podcast. You can also send us email at the green rush at KCSA.com. And please don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast well, or whatever, your podcatcher. It could be iTunes, it could be Google, it could be Stitcher, whatever the hell you're listening to us on. Um, every single one of you who does subscribe, it really helps us build our numbers, helps us get better guests and the like. Um, and that, Shay, that's one take, Shay. One take. <laughs>